Hello and welcome to the Ask Wrexham podcast. I'm joined by Laszlo, the podcasting cat who was not happy with my first intro and pressed the stop recording button. He is now having a go at the mic. Good lad. Make sure everything's working. Anyway, this is the podcast, of course, where we try to keep you informed and answer your questions on what's going on with Wrexham. You can ask us anything within reason and we'll be delighted to answer it. So let's get cracking straight away. Carrie Chan says, how do you determine who's captain when Young's not playing? Of course, Luke Young is the captain. He missed three games in a row as, as I'm recording it now. Well, there is no rule or formula. You, The manager decides and that's that. Um, it's not the case in other clubs and other cultures of football. For example, it's always traditional in Italy that the player who has been at the club longest will be the captain, which sometimes can lead to some peculiar situations. For a long time in Italy, in the sort of 80s, early 90s, Italian league was the best in the world and by far paid the best wages in the world. And this led to some interesting situations. It became a bit of a cliche that Italian teams would often have a reserve goalkeeper who rarely, if ever, played. And as they don't have reserve leagues, he really didn't play. He just trained. Um, but those goalkeepers would stay at the bigger clubs because why move on? They were getting paid terrific money just to watch football and train. And when the injured goalkeepers, the first team goalkeepers got injured, they'd have to step up and they'd often be made captain even though they weren't at all seen as part of the sort of strongest 11 simply because they had seniority and that's how they tend to do it in Italy. Um, in Britain, it's purely manager's choice. So in Wrexham's case, I mean, Ben Tozer came to Wrexham having been captain of his previous team, Cheltenham, when they got promoted from League One to, to League One. So he, for much of his career, has been a captain. He has many of the attributes he'd want in a captain. He's a leader. He has very high standards, which he expects the other players to stick to. And so he was a very natural choice. In fact, um, when he arrived, we'd already announced Luke Young as captain. And there were quite a few people asking, well, maybe Toza should be captain. You, you couldn't do that. Young had been appointed literally about two or three weeks earlier. And you shouldn't do that as well, because Young is an excellent captain. But there was a lot of scrutiny of Young at the start of last season and his captaincy style, um, which was silly, to be frank. And <clears throat> maybe partly as a compromise, or maybe just to stop people doing that, uh, Phil Parkinson made Young captain but then made Toza club captain. So almost like a, a sort of extra role acknowledging his seniority, or an overall captain, if you will. Um, some people would argue that who is captain is not hugely relevant or important in football. In cricket, where the captains make all the tactical decisions on the pitch and essentially fulfil the role of manager, um, it's much more important. In football, th there are some who would argue that it's, it's purely a... A ceremonial thing that somebody has the armband. Um, but yeah, I think Wrexham are lucky. I think we've got quite a few people with good leadership qualities anyway. But Toza was the obvious choice to step in and already had that role as club captain, whatever that means. Todd Lloyd asks, what do I think will be the biggest changes next year if, hopefully, we get promoted? Um, well, 
I, I think it's inevitable we'll improve the squad further, which is remarkable because I do think this is a, a League One quality squad, but I think it's inevitable we'll do that. Um, we'll be, if we do go up, we'll be on the iFollow network fully, if you will. So we'll no longer be on National uh, League TV, obviously. And I say obviously, but I mean, we've been using some of the Football League's uh, infrastructure already. So it's not that obvious. We will certainly get more away fans. And that's another reason. I mean, obviously it's important we build a cop because we need to get more fans in. But it's also important because we will be having to give more tickets to away fans and therefore the number of home fans could be squeezed further. So getting further capacity is absolutely crucial. Uh, one change I would point out though is that the National League tends to be where everything gets a bit more southern. There's a lot of more northern, more local teams to Wrexham in the Football League, and that's a good thing for us. I remember doing a piece for the Evening Leader when we first dropped down to the National League. I calculated that the amount of travel to away matches that we'd have to do, going there and back, was pretty much equivalent to going from Wrexham as the crow flies to New York. It's a fair amount of driving, I would argue. Um, and previously that wasn't the case. There's plenty of northwestern teams around Manchester uh, that we could play against in the Football League and in Cheshire as well, which is the county over the border from us. Uh, there's also quite a lot of them in what we in Britain would call the M62 corridor. Basically, the M62 is a motorway that goes across the north of uh, Britain. I'm pretty sure essentially it's Liverpool to Hull, which is on the East Coast. And there's quite a lot of clubs in and around there, you know, in Lancashire and Yorkshire. Uh, so there's going to be a lot more local matches, which will be much better for fans travelling to away games and much better as well, uh, just in terms of atmosphere, home and away. So that that's, a, that's another big, big thing. Uh, Brandt, are there many food or drink options inside the Kairas? Are there vendors selling things to people in the stands? Or am I correct to assume most supporters eat or drink before and after only? Um, right, I, I want to pick up the points about vendors before I answer the rest of the question. <clears throat> I'm fully aware, you know, in American sport, you will get vendors going around the stands themselves and offering uh, snacks and, and whatever. Red Hots, get your Red Hots here! And all that malarkey. That does not happen in Britain. At sporting events, uh, unless you're in the super posh seats where you're going to have waiter service or something like that, yeah, uh, that's a sort of that's an Arsenal Tottenham thing. Um, so you wouldn't have that anyway. You would have to leave your seats. I must say, from having been to both football, as in soccer, and baseball matches in America and the US, should I say, I would say that the stadia are often designed more for. Well, I mean, very well designed for the convenience of the, the fans who, if they want to get some food or a drink, can go and do so during the game. You know, designed so that you can see the match from where the refreshments are, for example. Uh, that's not something we do in Britain. And my son and I found it fascinating. We found it totally natural that in a baseball match, you wander away from your seat and get something. It's the same in cricket, in, in a, a sport which is broken up into bits and you can maybe wander off, miss a little bit of it, and it won't be too much of a disaster. Although in baseball, like I say, you wouldn't miss much. Um, certainly not in the new Yankee Stadium, which is the most recent stadium I've been to. But we also saw the Red Bulls play in a, the MLS, 
and we were fascinated by the fact that fans still got up and went for refreshments, even though it isn't designed really for uh, you to be able to see the pitch from the refreshments area. Fans would just disappear for 10 minutes, which was really alien to us as football fans. It's not unknown for football fans to leave early to avoid the traffic, although I've never got that myself. Um, but to actually walk out after half an hour to have a little relax, stretch your legs, get some food and drink, it happens a bit, I suppose. People can't wait until their next beer, but basically it doesn't really. So that's interesting. Anyway, sorry, back to that. Are there food and drink, or do people eat or drink before and after only? There's certainly a culture of going to the pub before and after. Absolutely absolutely right. Um, but, yeah, but also there is a culture of eating at the ground. I mean, look at us chatting about pies, although we have got a bit subverted away from our original plan with talking about pies because pork pies aren't really a football thing. They are nice, though. Um, so I took a picture for you of a typical refreshment stall at the racecourse. Now, this is in the Wrexham Lager stand. Um, I'm not 100%. I don't go in the opposite, the Macron stand, very much, but they got much better facilities because it's a newer stand for giving refreshments and the queues are shorter and it looks like they're better stocked but i i don't know that for certain you would think the whole place would have the same around the, the ground so as you can see there you can get beer on tap you can get cider on tap um soft drinks hot drinks the usual things Bovril, um bags of sweets crisps chocolate bars pies jumbo sausage roll uh, it's not just a sausage roll it's a big one um, I would argue that as well, though, that at bigger clubs, you might get people checking you're bringing food in with you. you know, big sporting event, should I say. You're not, you're, well, you know. Yeah, actually, I'd say most sporting events than football. Um, you certainly won't get that at Wrexham. If you bring some food with you, you're going to be fine. Um, also... Uh, I'm just thinking about cultural things as well. In Spain, there is the culture of making a bocadillo, making a nice big sandwich, stuffing it with something, and then bringing it yourself. And at half-time in the football matches, it's really funny. You just see everybody getting out these foil-wrapped sandwiches and eating them at half-time. They all bring their own stuff. Um, Spain is slowly catching up commercially with British football, but essentially doesn't exploit the fans nearly as much and it's not uncommon i've been to a lot of spanish grounds a lot of different spanish games and it's not uncommon just to see people outside in the car park with tables like you would see in the classroom in the school with just rows of bags of crisps and nuts and i mean they, they love um pumpkin seeds chewing pumpkins and spitting it out on the floor beneath their seat um and you see that rather than organized catering quite often um, I've seen that inside grounds. I've been to a place like Malaga, you know, bigish club, and they've got a, they had the people just with a table on the stairs inside the stands. You just walk up, buy a bag of crisps or some pumpkin seeds. It's very different from Britain. That's not across the board, but it's very common. Um, Sam Malakajunan says, "Why do you all keep mentioning a game in hand re-promotion relative to Notts County? Is that significant relative to the point situation? Right, well, when you have a game in hand, basically it means you've played fewer games than your opponent. So we have a game in hand on Notts County. We've played one game less on Notts County. Now that's a theoretical advantage, isn't it? Um, because if we win it, we go six points clear of Notts County. We have to win that game in hand, obviously, or it's pointless and." 
often my gut feeling is I'd rather have the points on the board than the games in hand. But with this contest between Wrexham and Notts County, I, I've not felt that quite so much because both sides have been so relentless that you expect them to win their games. So, um, yeah, to have a game in hand is potentially a big advantage. You can have more than one game in hand. Um, you know, so theoretically, it can be a genuine advantage because, well, certainly in the position Wrexham are now, we're ahead and we played fewer games. So there's a potential there for us to expand the lead or just the fact that, you know, we have scope to make mistakes. We don't want to, but we can slip up a little bit and still be okay. Deep State Thang says, how are Wrexham's results from the Football League West and North divisions during the World War Two? Uh, viewed as far as the club's history are they counted as normal or basically dismissed as not being official records they are dismissed as not being official records um i mean it, it, it wartime football is a fascinating subject and it really fascinates me but um the bottom line is these are not seen as official matches now wrexham did very well in the war in football a um, big part of that was because they were there are big army barracks in Wrexham, the Hightown Barracks. And sorry, I'm just opening my window because it's gone super dark all of a sudden. And when the sun comes out, I'll be blinded. Sorry about that interlude. Um, yeah, basically the, the barracks were there. Now, obviously, with conscription, everybody who was well, all males of. A sort, of, uh, sort of healthy age and healthy in body were being called up so all the footballers were going off to war and as the barracks were a major training ground for the British Army a lot of major footballers trained in Wrexham and the government realised for, for keeping people's morale up that it would be a good idea to continue to have football played but there was just no way to have normal football because some soldiers were out fighting some soldiers were out you know, to, to doing their training somewhere else. How do you do this? So they re basically relaxed registration laws. So rather than only being able to play your own players who are registered to you, you could get temporary, very swift registration just for anybody. And as a result, a lot of major international English players and Welsh players played for Wrexham on and off during the Second World War. And one year... Again, the whole thing is complicated, and that's why it's not viewed as serious in terms of actual official matches. Um, the league tables were a bit of a hodgepodge. I've just talked about games in hand. Well, some clubs could get lots of games played, other clubs couldn't. Some grounds were bombed and destroyed, Manchester United, for example. So there was a real... You, you couldn't guarantee all the teams playing the same number of games during the season. So there was a sort of notional league table. And one year, Wrexham actually came top. And you could therefore, in some ways, theoretically argue we were the champions of England and Wales. Of course, that, that, that's not the case, you know, so it's not taken as seriously. Um, and people don't talk about it at all because they're seen as sort of friendly games, if you will. Um, so that nobody brags about their trophies won during the war. And very few people seem to be aware of it. But it is a very, very interesting story to tell. There are some interesting books about wartime football as well. Um, they're behind me in this room somewhere. And if I'd only thought on, I would have said the titles of them, and now I can't remember them. Uh, can I see them? 
Laszlo's down by the books now, trying to help me out. Uh, no. But there are some good, I mean, yeah, there are some interesting books about wartime football to, that, that you can read. Because um, that's generally what you do with books, isn't it? Sharp iron. Kurt Bennett asks, but he said, I'm not going to miss those Tuesday games. I bet the boys won't either. Have they all been rescheduled matches or are there normally some games on weekdays? Well, there's usually some scheduled for midweeks. They keep a lot of the midweeks empty. They'll schedule games for every Saturday. Um, I think I, I went back and counted and I think it was some, we had something like eight or nine that were actually scheduled for midweek. Um, but then, of course, like I say, our FA Cup games and FA Trophy games, when they start clashing with uh, league matches, the league matches have to step aside and get replayed at late date when there's bad weather. Likewise, so I'm just making sure Lazo doesn't stop the recording again. Good boy. So, yeah, basically, um, some of them were scheduled already. And there is something fun. People always talk about you know, going to football under the lights. You know, f football in the floodlights, uh, under the floodlights, people often feel there's a better atmosphere. Can I be frank and say there is truth to this? It does depend on how many people are there, I can promise you. Being at the race course on a dark winter night when it's pouring down and there's one and a half thousand people there or less, that's not an exciting experience. Uh, now then, Michael Bede says, enjoying the game and commentary from Shytown. I've been to Wales, love the show Gavin and Stacey. So my question is, what two characters do you guys identify with? One of you definitely sounds like Uncle Bryn while calling the game. I'll ask the others during the commentary this week. We've got a nice double header commentary, of course. York on a Saturday and then on the Sunday, Connor's Key Nomads, so the women's team. Um, I, I reckon the bloke who sounds like Uncle Bryn is probably Neil. I would argue he's got the most Welsh accent of the four of us. Um, Gavin and Stacey is South Walian, so they have very different accents from us and very different dialects. So that all that um oh oh what's a Karen? That's a very South Walian thing. It's not something that we tend to say up here, um, and they tend to have more I, I would say sing-songy accents. Uh, the guy Bryn is is famous in his own right in Britain. He's a comedian and an actor, and he's been in quite a lot of good things. Called Rob Brydon, and uh, he's a very good mimic as well. Uh, so Bryn, yeah, yeah, it's great when he introduces himself, isn't it, to the ones in Essex? He said, Bryn, it means hill. That's, that's nice. And then of course Pam, uh, she said, Oh, what does my name mean in, uh, in Welsh? And he says, Why? Because that is Pam is the Welsh word for why. It's brilliant. I'll tell you who I, I'll ask the others um, at the weekend. I'll tell you who I, I, I think I do associate with. I, I watched, I saw, saw this question. I thought, ooh, who am I going to say? And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really dull here. I think that when I watch it, I always feel I quite like Larry Lamb, the actor on the right-hand side of the picture, if you're watching the video, the guy who was Gavin's dad. He always seems like a terribly sensible bloke who just like, sorts everything out and keeps everyone calm. And Well, I never knew I was like that, but I do seem to... I think I do associate with him a little bit. Maybe it's the same in the commentary team, isn't it? You know, I've got to try and keep those three whippersnappers a bit calmer. Um, I would say that Che and Bill have got more Wrexham accents than Neil is a bit more sort of Welsh. Let's say, last you're not eating a cable. That's okay, carry on. Um, it's stronger Welsh accent. 
Neil is a, is a Welsh native Welsh speaker as well. That's part of it. I think I sound a little more Welsh than Wrexham in a way, but I've got to say it's a, it's it's that's not a reflection of my Welsh skills. They're really not very good, but I I do think I'm a little bit more maybe sing songy. Uh, there's no reason for that really. My family have all come from Wrexham or the surrounding villages for a couple of generations, so I, I don't know why it's turned out that way, haven't I? I suppose. Uh, Steve Kernsley says, if Rob's out for the season, what do you think about coaxing Ben Foster out of retirement for six weeks as a backup for Mark Howard? Um, I firstly think it's a non-starter. I think it's very unfortunate timing that the story about us cheekily approaching him broke just before Leighton got injured, um, because it, I don't think it's a serious story at all. Um, and, and let's be honest here, Foster hasn't played all season. So even if it was a serious story. I mean, how long is it going to take for him to get up to speed? I'm glad, Steve, that you've been sensible about this and said, back up. Yeah, because you would be looking at, I would say, as backup. Howard has kept 11 clean sheets this season. Uh, that's good. You know, he has done fine for us and we're top of the table and he's played almost all the games. So um, I've seen some people going into meltdown over Howard playing again. Uh, that's silly. I think that's really silly. Um, but I don't think Foster's a possibility. I think it's feasible that we might look at another goalkeeper having, you know, had lanes and uh, in this available and then not. But I, I don't know. I guess that's Parkinson's call, isn't it? There is a deadline. I'm not sure exactly when it is. I can't remember now. Where after which you can't bring in new players. So we, you know, you may see some movement. Who knows? Idina uh, said, "Very curious about this insane goal." Well. Firstly, let's have a look at it because it's a bit good. Great dribbling by Adriano Moak. Nolan. Well, he's tripped there. Gus Mafuta. Just caught him late. Colin Jennings urging the players to keep the ball moving quickly. I think Nolan's been one of the unsung heroes today for Wrexham. His Vos. He'll be disappointed not to have a goal yet. Anyway, here is Vose. Great dribbling by Don Vose. And still, Vose, he gets past another. Oh, what a goal! Don Vose, one of the goals of the season. He has toyed with the defence there. And that is remarkable. The Bull Boys are getting involved. That is ridiculously good from Don Vose. Wrexham have a 3 0 lead. Wow. Again and again, he took it past the defenders. It looked like the chance had gone. Pass one, pass another. Mesmerised everyone in the stadium. And surely that sealed it now. Just listen to that reception. Well, that signals the way home for some of the Gateshead fans. Well, it's one or two Gateshead fans that's a clap in that goal. Yeah, it's a beaut, ain't it? It's on YouTube, easy to find as the best goal in 150 years. And I will explain why it's got that title in a moment. But it's a goal against Gateshead in 2015 by Dom Vos. Now, we had an odd time that season. 
we had Gary Mills, a manager coming in who had done remarkable things with York City and Gateshead and made them look fantastic. And then we brought him in. Everybody was utterly thrilled. We felt sorry. Just oh, there you go, Laszlo. Uh, everyone felt, oh my gosh, we've got an incredible manager. We're going to blow the league away. Brought in some very interesting players. And at the start of the season, we looked sensational. And then, really bizarrely, he suddenly decided to change how we were playing completely. And the promotion push fell apart. The next season, he got rid of lots of the good players who'd done well for us. Brought in some very peculiar selections. And he was gone about, what, six, eight weeks into the season because we were going to get relegated. And luckily, Dean Keats came in and got us back on an even keel. Um, so it was a very odd interlude. Now, Vose, in some ways, sums it up. Vose was a remarkably gifted player. There is an interview with him, actually, in an episode of Dragonheart. You're easy to find if you if you uh, Google Dragonheart Don Vose. He was so gifted, such a talented player. Um, he didn't do an awful lot of the working back and helping the team out, I admit. But you know, he was remarkable. He By... by January, he'd got into double figures for both goals and assists. That's a fair achievement, especially as he wasn't playing through the middle as an out-and-out striker. We played 4-3-3. He played as a left winger, and he would cut inside, and he had insane talent. He could strike wonderful shots. He could dribble through people, as you just saw in that amazing goal. And he was very, very exciting. And, yeah, OK, maybe he could work harder. But, you know, I, th I think most people felt... You you accommodate him in the team. You someone of that talent. He's a real match winner. You work your team structure around him. Um, there's no suggestion that I'm aware of that he was ever difficult off the pitch either. And yet suddenly Mills decided to get rid of him. Uh, dropped him from the team and then got rid of him. And it was odd. That match against Gateshead was quite something. We were actually nil nil at half time against Mills's old team. And then in the second half, Vose did that. And we ended up winning 4-0. It's a wonderful goal. Uh, he actually scores a second goal in the game, which in other seasons could possibly be a goal of the season. It's a lovely strike. The ball has fizzed across the area. And he hits it first time at the outside of his foot into the top corner. It's a brilliant goal. Everyone forgets about that because the first one's phenomenal. Why is it called the best goal in 150 years? Well, because... I wanted us to get lots of hits on YouTube, so I called it that. It's an attention grabber, and it works. If you look at how many uh, views it's got, it's done pretty darn well. It's also because that was, well, the year of our... Well, the, the season before was our 150th anniversary, and it was, a, it was a big affair. We made a lot of fanfare about it, and so I just thought that was perfect to ask the question. And although, obviously, you know, hyperbole works on the internet, I've got to say... That may well be our best goal in 150 years. It's astonishing, isn't it? Um, a, a little comment about it is that Vose, actually, when I interviewed him, said he was a little disappointed with it, believe it or not, because he felt that having got all the way through the defenders like that, the finish, the actual shot, isn't that good. You know, he's he's not hit it into a corner. It's wonderful, like an artist, like a matador. Um, like Ali knocking down Fraser and standing over him with the pose. He wanted that final perfect flourish, that aesthetic moment, and he didn't get it. He feels he sort of scuffed the shot and was a bit lucky the goalkeeper missed it. I did do put it to him that he is twisting and turning so dramatically that the goalkeeper is deceived by it. it it's not a mistake. 
it's really hard to see, you know, when is he going to shoot? Where is he going to shoot? It, it's hard to follow. It's understandable the goalkeeper's off balance. Um, and funnily enough, on Dragonheart, I've also interviewed the goalkeeper because he used to play for Axum, Sam Russell. And he's a nice bloke who said he just felt bad about the goal. <laughs> he said he felt he could have saved it. Well, again, I had to explain my arguments about Vos's deceptive qualities again and how you can't really blame any keeper for being turned inside out when a guy is switching the ball from foot to foot like that. I, I Trust me, as a, a failed goalkeeper myself, when you, that sort of player running at you, and you, it's not so much just where you think they're going to put the shot, it's when are they going to hit it. Is he hitting it now? No, he hasn't. Um, you can get dumped on your backside as a goalkeeper by thinking, well, this is now it, he's hitting this, and then when you commit, you find the player's actually taking an extra touch and fooled you. So, yeah... That's a hell of a goal, though, isn't it? It's a hell of a goal. I got chicken, and thank God you have. Says, what happens to the starting back line once Hayden is fully cleared to return? Fabulous question. Fabulous question. Because Hayden is an outstanding player, obviously. He's got real talent. He has potential to play a lot higher up the divisions. But that back three at the moment, Tozer, O'Connell and Tunnicliffe, it's rock solid, isn't it? You know, they are so strong and physical. Hayden's got more pace than the three of them. But Tony Cliff and O'Connell no slouches. And they're both good on the ball, bringing it out. Uh, so, yeah, very good question. What happens? I assume Hayden will come back in. But I don't think Parkinson will rush into bring, bringing him in. Because you're going to demoralise a player by saying, thanks, now get out the team, Hayden's back. It may well be, we'll just see what we're seeing in midfield where players are rotated. So, you know, players, players in general don't like being rotated. They'd rather be playing every week. But, you know, nowadays players accept that it's part and parcel of the game. And, and so that that may be what we find. I think Tozo will be a pretty much a constant in the middle. Although Tunnicliffe and O'Connell certainly have the qualities to play that role. But Tunnicliffe, you know, he's got that long pass on him to bring play out. And he also has a long throw. So I think those things, as well as his leadership, mean he's playing... I don't think Hayden, I guess, will compete on the right-hand side. Uh, have you seen O'Connell and Tony Cliff fitting on right and left-hand side? And, of course, yeah, the other thing, remarkable strength and depth we've got. I've not even mentioned Max Clewis there, who was in a hell of a prospect. Or Harry Lennon, who, like I said, is not fully fit, but is a player of genuine quality. Chris Babaiko says, how are youth mascots chosen? Other than walking out with the team, do they get to meet players, see the game, etc.? Where did this tradition start? Certainly, all of the time I've watched football, there'd be mascots um, who've been coming out. Not in the sort of way you see in the bigger matches at like the World Cup, where you've got one with every player, but like you see with Wrexham normally, one player, uh, one mascot coming out, or two coming out at the front. Um, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I will check up. I... The, the tradition before COVID was that basically there would be members of the Junior Dragons who had a junior fan club and met, they would be put into a draw to be selected. There'd be occasional times when we'd break that rule where maybe there was a particular story of a, a, a child who deserved uh, you know, a special day and we, we'd do that certainly. But generally it would be people um, you know, selecting from a random draw from the youth fan club. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they do it since COVID. For a while, we obviously had no mascots. So I'm not 100% what's going on now. And also, look, in terms of the question, do they meet the players? Yes. They go in, they'll, they'll meet the players. Do they get to see the game? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, they used to do other things, which they don't seem to now, like have a tour of the grounds before the match. And I used to love that. I asked if they could come up to us. I used to quite enjoy having spending 10 minutes showing them the press box and boring them with a little bit of history. Their parents usually enjoyed that more than the kids, sadly. And maybe let them have a go at the microphones. And also give them a tip, because they'd always end the tour by going up to the police surveillance area, which has got a microphone. And it's also like where they play music from, things like that. And shout into the microphone, my name is Kevin, and my favourite player is Rob Layton. And they'd always shout into it, and it was cute, because it, it would make a terrible noise. Again, microphones aren't designed to be shouted into. And they'd be squealing everywhere. And I'd always say to them, oh, like, don't shout into it. You're not. That's not what they're made for. If you just speak into it, we can hear you perfectly, and I'll give you a wave, and I'll clap you. And, and it was cute that they'll do it like quite quietly and be really clear around the ground, and then we'd all be clapping them in the press box. It was great fun. So they don't seem to do that anymore, which is a shame. I don't know if that's because of COVID or not, but they certainly will get to go in the changing room and beat the players and things like that, absolutely. Jamie Lightning mentioned the club is fine for bad fan behaviour, flares going on the pitch. How much is it? Does it depend on activity or home versus away? What about National League against FA Cup? There were flares at Coventry. Um, I had a little look back and I, and I thought maybe one of the best ways to explain this was back about, what, five, six years ago, we played Tranmere away and flares were thrown on the pitch and we got a fine of £1,600. Now, there are extenuating circumstances, and that's why I picked this as an example. I say extenuating circumstances, I mean in, in terms of how much we got fined. We got fined that much partly because uh, we were under suspended sentences for previous offences. Also, we got fined partly, part of that amount, about £600, was for the flares. There was then another £600 odd because people threw objects onto the pitch. And there was another 250 I think it was, for people running onto the pitch, like celebrating. So the problem for us, like I said, there were suspended sentences triggered, I think, for the flares and for the throwing things on the pitch. And the problem is that we have, sadly, for quite a long time, had a record of doing this, or should I say a small minority of our fans have, and they cost the club a lot of money. Now, I know you could say, oh, we're rich, who cares? Well, that's not the point. Rob and Ryan didn't invest in the club so they could pay for people to act antisocially, clearly. So, it's, it's soft, it's silly, you know? I mean, certainly before Rob and Ryan took over, it was taking a real chunk out of our budgets. I accept our budget's bigger now, but that doesn't mean it's okay to act like an idiot. Um, Rob and Ryan have been very good at stepping in. Um, as for whether the, the context matters, um, home or away doesn't matter. Except that they, that's what they could argue that the home club has a responsibility, and if certain sorts of events happen, you have the responsibility of of checking people going in, or a responsibility to ensure people's safety. Um, National League or FA Cup, now that doesn't matter. Um, we for this are under the administration of the Welsh FA, and they decide what to how to punish us. And I think there's maybe a, a feeling that they might punish us a tiny bit more than if we were the same size club doing the same things in England under the English FA because they don't have many professional teams to keep an eye on. And so because of that, maybe we are higher on their agenda. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, my gut feeling is maybe. But, you know, ultimately, I wouldn't blame them. Antisocial behaviour is stupid and it's costing us and these idiots need to stop doing it. That's the bottom line. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
extremely reluctant to try to complain about the Welsh FA finding us too much because the truth of the matter is, you know, if that sort of stuff happens, there has to be a punishment. Lusu says, hope to welcome to Wrexham cameras capture Robin Ryan's realisation of the awful dilemma of national team call-ups, national pride versus risk of injury. Can Parkey refuse to send a player to a national team call-up? Great question. I assume you're asking about Sam Dolby, who of course didn't in the end play for England C. Right, now then, let me look at it from Wrexham's perspective in terms of that first, and I'll move on to actual international games. Um, that's not an international. England C is a sort of made-up thing for National League players, so it's players who are English from the 5th Division and below. It's not that serious a game, in all honesty, and therefore, yeah, withdraw players from that. There's no um, compulsion. I think people tend to do it more diplomatically and just pulling them out, but yeah, um, that's not terribly serious. The national pride against risk of injury question is a good one, there's a, there's a great history of players getting pulled out of matches um, for injury reasons or possible injury reasons. Uh, Ryan Giggs famously rarely played friendlies for Wales um, because Manchester United would constantly say, oh, he's got a bad leg. Um, players tend, I would say, and fans as well, to prioritise club above country except for when it comes for to you know big tournaments when you're desperate to play in the world cup or you know continental championship it is different if you get an actual national team call-up now fifa protects certain weekends or weeks and there's one coming up now for international fixtures and that means that there'll be no premier league in the upcoming weekend there'll be no championship either because a lot of international players in the championship there will be league one league two national league so those international breaks they call them you are not able to say i'm not sending him i mean sometimes clubs do that sort of thing and end up in disputes and often players have their international careers ended by that sort of uh malarkey but you're not supposed to now uh, and often countries will say we'll have an independent medical check if, if somebody is getting withdrawn from a squad. You have no scope to fight against that. The clubs do not have priority. The countries can call up players and that's that. From Wrexham's perspective, now say we had that. We, we have had that. Um, for example, when we've had Trinidadian internationals, we had an agent who got con well connected with Trinidad's players and we Wrexham got connected with him and we got quite a lot of players coming in and um, so sometimes they get called up now the rule is if, you, if you're in like league one league two national league and the, the games have not been called off because of international break the rule certainly used to be uh, as far as i'm aware it still is the case you have to have three players called up otherwise your game goes ahead and you just don't have those players so if we had a player called up we would just lose them. If we had two players, we'd lose them. Three, we can say, right, we want the game called off. Regular Ask Wrexham correspondent says, pardon my ignorance on this one, don't you worry, I'm more ignorant than anybody. With the women's game at the racecourse on Sunday, could we get a quick overview of the women's sides and their positions to help follow along with the audio, com audio commentary on Sunday? Good thinking, because audio commentary, let's be honest, it's a lot of names getting thrown at you. So here you are. I've made a little guide for you. I hope it's uh, useful for you. 
so the women's team, I've, if you're watching on the video, I've tried to lay it out with giving an idea of the positions that people play. Um, I want to put a, a codicil in first, which is that I am I'm not an expert on the women's team. I've seen them a little bit, and I've deliberately tried to get more knowledge to build up to do the commentary on Sunday. I've said before, and I'll say it again, I, I wouldn't be willing to do the women's commentary or indeed any other coverage unless I actually felt I was able to commit enough time to to cover them properly and and normally I haven't been able to fortunately I feel I have for this game so I'm I'm thrilled to do this but there are other people who know about the women's team a lot better than I do so please uh, consult them don't take my word as gospel but anyway like I said if it's on vid if you're looking on video you can see the layout but let me talk you through anyway the 11 that played in the last match the 11-1 win at Rill which clinched the title Del Morgan in goal is uh, a major signing we made last season. She's she came through the Liverpool Academy, then joined Wrexham Ladies. Now Wrexham Ladies was a, a sort of previous iteration of this club, um, but this one's fully affiliated with the football club and is part of the football club. So really, strictly speaking, this team has existed for two seasons. But she played for the previous iteration of, of the Wrexham side, as did a few of these players, and then left and was with Everton. She's also a goalkeeper coach and coaches the Wales under nineteens and, and she's a she's a good quality goalkeeper for this level, definitely, and the level above. The back four in that match, at right back was Erin Lovers, who's a who's a good versatile defender. Um the centre backs are interesting. Casey Sharp has been with the U the women's setup since Gemma Rowan was organising you know, sort of a friendly kickabouts for young girls just to start the ball rolling and she's been through the, the system ever since and it's a very young back four that Wrexham have got and Sharp brings a little bit of extra experience alongside her Lily Jones is a heck of a prospect she's from our extremely successful under 19s team um where she often plays higher up the pitch but she's terrifically versatile she can play defensively midfield she scores goals for the, the under 19s and she's a proper talent and so she's playing being playing center back lately in the senior team on the left hand side Mia Roberts is a very attacking full back likes to get forwards and look to deliver the ball into dangerous areas we had a double pivot we usually play 4-2-3-1 and so in that match the double pivot was Mary Gibbard who's a recent signing she's got experience last season in the top division of the Welsh uh, women's setup so she's a, she's a really impressive signing she's a good calm midfielder she can play in a normal central midfield role or she can step a bit further up to play behind the striker uh, really good signing and alongside her was TJ Dickens who is a, a young creative midfielder I've, I've seen her quite a lot higher up the pitch playing off the striker and again creative looks to play those killer balls with the three behind the striker well I'm a particular fan of Amber Lightfoot every time I've seen her play on the left flank I think she's very exciting likes to take people on really good delivery from wide areas can also come inside and score goals so a real sort of all-round dangerous package and on the right hand side was Rebecca Pritchard who again is strong and, and aggressive and is able also to get into the box to cause problems um, in the middle and we've got a few players who can play these sorts of second line roles, if you will, you know, just playing off the striker. Uh, but in the middle of that attacking lineup, uh, we have Lily McKenzie 
and she is also a good creative player and a goal threat. Did I say Lily then? I must beg your pardon, I misspoke Libby McKenzie. Uh, so she's a real threat. And then up front, of course, is the phenomenal Rosie Hughes, whose goal-scoring record is utterly terrifying. Already the all-time goal scorer, <laughs> most highest goal scorer of Atlantidno, and now with us. I mean, it's just ludicrous. She just bangs in hat-tricks. It's absolutely crazy. Now, we do have other players who give depth to the squad. My, Like I said, I, I misspoke earlier when I said Libby McKenzie's name um, because there's also Lauren McCaffrey. I get all these Al Maxi people mixed up. And Lauren McCaffrey, also a good, creative young player. Um, Ava Suckley has got goals in her, and she's a player who plays in the 19s as well. Sophie Hodgson is an attacking player who can play wide or through the middle, who was, was signed this season and has a bit of physicality in the box as well. In midfield, of course, there's the club captain, Kim Dutton, who is a lifelong Wrexham fan and has been a fine player for us. He's still young, uh, moves the ball around well, fills gaps well, reads the game well. Um, also, at right back, we've got Ella Clifton Stringer, who is an under-19s player, who is a real prospect. And as well as her at full-back, we've got uh, Megan Buckley, and she is very strong. I, I, she came on against uh, Fellinelli uh, three games ago. Uh, strength and intelligence in her use of the ball can play centre-back as well. Ruby Jones often comes on as a sub at centre-back. Uh, she's a, another promising young central defender, come through the under-19s. And we also have Faye Jones in goal, uh, who's back up to Del Morgan and played in that game against the Fellinelli and did well. Uh, we have strength and depth. There will be players I've missed out, I'm sure, and I do apologise, and I can assure you that's because I have gaps in my knowledge. It's not any slight on any other players. But, um, yeah, we have got uh, some exciting attacking players and some strong defensive ones, and that is the most facile thing I've ever said. And seeing as I said, I wouldn't cover the women's team if I couldn't avoid facile comments because I know what I'm talking about. feels like... My brain is telling me to shut up now and <laughs> get on with the rest of the Ask Rex and questions. I am so looking forward to the game on Sunday, though. Uh, it'll, it'll be fabulous. There's such a crowd in for that game. There you go. Hope that was useful. Right, Pamela <laughs> says, Why do UK English use plural verbs for nouns that Americans consider singular? For example, um, we'll say the family have something, and in, in the States you'd say the family has something i see it daily from the uk and this grammar geek has long wondered why i i think the dull answer is it is just the way it goes it's just the way that we have developed our language over the years without any particular plan as languages don't of course so um i guess we we see a family as a collection of individuals the same with a team i'd say wrexham have one not wrexham has one Whereas you're seeing it as a, a plural, as an individual, which, which you know, to be fair, not you know, makes sense. You know, a, a unit, a family is one unit, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I noticed that in uh, European languages, they tend to go the direction that you go. So I think English spoken in the UK maybe is a, a linguistic outlier in this case. I have no better answer than that, I'm afraid, Pamela. 
Amarohi, how is Leighton? Well, we now know six weeks out, which is bad. How is Hayden? We understand he's very close to being available. How is Mullen? Any updates on the long-distance diagnosis, which Neil offers? Um, it seems he's, he's carrying a knee injury anyway, which hopefully shouldn't be too much of a problem for him. So hopefully he's okay, and then they have it sorted in the summer. Did I have my shoulder examined and diagnosed, to quote Nancy Griffith from a distance? I can't remember what I said about my shoulder. It's awful. Did I talk about how I used to be able to raise my shoulder up? I, I can only raise my shoulder up to the height of my... My, sorry, my hand up to the height of my shoulder. Whereas I used to be able to do this and raise it all the way up to the top. If so, all I can say is all diagnosis is pointless. It's a psychological thing. And also, for my information, and those of you who haven't listened to the commentary will be fascinated to hear that this came up last weekend. Edgar Allan Poe's cousin was 13 when he married her. I mistakenly said 14. And I apologise. Well played. Thane Embrace 13. Oh, Laszlo just jumped up and I didn't see him coming. I just maybe. Oh, he jumped out of my skin. Um, great question. This. After watching a few Notts games, it seems that Langstaff literally never touches the ball unless he's in a shooting position. This seems in marked contrast to Mullen, who's a quintessential workhorse. Is the Notts Langstaff head of the spear a common tactic? Beautifully put as well. Um, also, flip side to that question, is Mullen killing himself running up and down the field 24-7? Common for a striker. I feel I'm looking at two opposite styles of play and don't know enough to know whether one is an outlier. Neither are outliers, I would say. There are lots of different types of strikers. Sometimes it's down to an approach you want from your team. Sometimes it's just you, you know, different players have different traits. You are 100% correct. Uh, Langstaff is, uh, the cliche would call him a poacher, perhaps. He's very much a player who wants to stay in and around the box. He doesn't get particularly join in with build-up play but he is a terrific finisher and he's a very good technical player his first touch is excellent so his ability when the ball comes to him at all sorts of speeds and heights to kill it and hit it fast and accurately powerfully bottom corner is impressive he's, he's a really good striker uh, Mullen is also a very good finisher obviously but he's more of an all-round player isn't he he's got a terrific attitude you know to his work rate and as you say there's a danger you could burn yourself out a bit playing like that but he he has more variety and you look at the type of goals he scores I mean I say that Langscarf is superb um, but Mullen scores long-range goals sometimes that chip against Stockport last season was outrageous he can do that and he can do work in the box and that, that's a rare quality to have and players so effective in both sides of, of attacking plays. So, and he sets goals up as well. He's, he's a good crosser with the ball. He interplays well with players. He can, he's got a decent pass on him um, and he can dribble and beat people. So he's much more the all-round player um, but that's not meant to criticism of Langstaff. These poacher type players. Oh, another cliche, fox in the box. Player who comes alive in the box. Um, you know, that's not uncommon. Juan Ugarte um, was a, an iconic player like that for Wrexham in the 2004-05 season, came on trial um, having essentially because his mate, Chabi Alonso, played for Liverpool and got him a trial at Liverpool, and he wasn't that level, but they recommended go on trial at Wrexham. And he was that sort of player, very quick, really good finisher, Scored 24 goals in his one full season. Once I say full season, he didn't arrive until about six, eight weeks into it. 
um, but was very much that. Didn't do that much in the build-up play, but lurks and read the play well, got himself into good positions in the box to finish, and got himself into good positions to use his pace by lurking level with the last defender and then bursting in behind when the ball was played in. Um, Gary Lineker, of course, when in the news lately, was exactly that sort of player for England and for Everton and for Barcelona, although they used him in a slightly different way. Um, very quick, very sharp in the penalty area. People talk about having an instinct to spot where the ball's going to come. I think it's more an instinct to understand where spaces are that you can attack. Um, but anyway, he, he was a very similar type of player, as was Ian Rush, a great legendary Welsh striker who played for Liverpool, Juventus, and last season of his career for Wrexham and didn't score any goals. Um, he was exactly the same, very fast, read the play very intelligently, anticipated well and was sharp in the penalty area and had that a quality of finish and quality of touch that, that Langstaff's got. So no, no, some people might say it's a, it would work well to have one of each. Um, probably would, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. I felt a little bit last season we were set up in a similar way. Hyde, who didn't quite come off for us and injuries didn't help him, but he was more the penalty area player and a tall bloke like Palmer, but not as effective as Palmer, I think, in holding the ball up and winning headers. Whereas Mullen often would like work either side of him. But Mullen kept getting into the scoring positions anyway. Rollin Wyckoff, Notts County's manager, says promotion race is over. Seems a little premature. I wouldn't want my managers to make a statement like that until it was mathematically impossible. Well, I say firstly, Rollin, 100% agree. I would not like that either. In Britain, we seem obsessed with the idea of... Um, well, they call it um, mind games. I'm not convinced by this. Everyone you say that Alex Ferguson, the really iconic Man United manager, was a genius at mind games. I'm not sure he was. I think it was more that he would often make comments and the media would build it up as, oh, this is clever, what's he up to now? Um, and, and people try to copy it. Some managers do, some managers don't. They'll say things maybe to try and get influence a referee or to influence a manager or influence their own players, perhaps. Um, as when we, I don't know if you saw Antonio Conte, the Spurs manager, have his meltdown last weekend. There was a thought of me, because he was really critical of his players, is he doing this in order to get a response from them? The general feeling was no, he was just angry, and he, he's basically burning his bridges with his own players, which isn't very clever, or even that he's deliberately trying to get himself sacked because he wants to get out of the job without having to... You know, sort of miss out on compensation. Although his contract ends at the end of the season, so in that case, I'm not sure he didn't just walk out. Anyway, um, but you know, that could have been mind games possibly to get the players to react in a certain way. Williams has said this more than once, and I assume what he's trying to do, well, I assume what he's trying to do is play mind games with us to make us feel like, oh, we're under pressure now because we've got to finish it off and maybe relieve pressure off his players by saying, lads, look, just relax and play now because the league's gone. I agree. I think that would be demotivating. And the fact that he keeps saying it after disappointing results, well, I don't know. I mean, the alternative is that he's actually panicking a little bit. I, I find that hard to believe, but I, I think he's taking risks saying things like that, certainly is, is my view on that. Jay Bailey um, asked, after watching Fulham's complete loss of composure and subsequent defeat in the FA Cup quarterfinals, do you think Parkinson and the squad's commitment to maintaining composure has been a success factor? Seems we also sit at the top of the fair play tables too. Um, I strongly agree with that, and I'm, I'm, I'm essentially going to read 
Mike Jones, our F's uh, correspondent, um, his answer to that because, yeah, I, I agree totally with what he's saying. He said, from a ref's point of view, yes. Refs are unpredictable beings at best, so the instruction this season is leave the ref alone. That's worked. Players now concentrate on their own play. Last season, sendings off and suspensions cost us points. But Mullen missed seven games through suspension. He still got over 30 goals. But, you know, now he's not getting suspended and he's got 40. And as Mike said, it's a pleasure to watch. So, yeah, I think there is a deliberate approach here. We're not getting that many yellow cards. Imagine, to be fair, when you got the ball a lot, <laughs> maybe it's hard to foul other players. But, yeah, I, I think it is deliberate and genuinely working well. Jim also asks, it seems to be that Lee's increased activity and aggressiveness is due in large part to Cannon controlling the midfield possession so well. <clears throat> I'm going to agree and disagree. I think Lee's been very active and aggressive anyway before Cannon came in. So I think, to be fair, I think that his he has adapted himself superbly to a style of play that he wasn't really brought in to bring to the team. And I, I really tip the hat to him for that. Um, but I would also say Cannon is an excellent player, isn't he? And he's, he is controlling midfield. And that does suit Lee as well because they are both really good ball-playing players. They can combine well. And having a, a player like him inside him certainly doesn't hurt Lee. Not that I'm trying to be disparaging of any other midfielders we've got. But, you know, Cannon and Lee certainly seem to be on the same wavelength when they're exchanging passes and moving. Beer, bear, beer. Uh, this is this was a couple of weeks ago, so I'm sorry. I've been I mean, catching up, as I said last time, with asking some questions. With Mendy having a lacklustre game, it's the um, Southend game, wasn't it? Um, seemed to stay off the ball. Is there any correlation to his role in, with Wrexham having a hard time getting going against Southend? Yeah, but I'm, I, it's a chicken and egg thing. You're right, Mendy was nowhere near as effective as normal, but a lot of players weren't. Um, was it that the whole unit found it difficult because Southend played in a certain way which troubled us and because the pitch maybe wasn't um, great or was it that individuals didn't play well and so the unit didn't work? I, I don't know. I know we missed his thrust down the left-hand side because he is an excellent wing-back, isn't he? Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure except to say that you put your finger on the correct thing there but which one caused which? I, I wouldn't like to guess. Simone, Lady B, can I explain what I talk about when I mean when I, when I mean when I talk about shape? Is that got something to do with formation? It, it certainly has, but I would say right. We tried to explain this in the commentary, and I'll have another stab now. What's your shape when you haven't got the ball? Are you balanced? Are you vulnerable? I would say when a team's got good shape. If you, generally, I think I'm saying the, you know, the other side's got the ball, but we drop behind the ball. We look compact and solid and there's no obvious way to get through us. That's good shape. Being higgledy-piggledy, having players out of position, players maybe higher at the pitch than they should be, where they can't really defend the goal. I said it's poor shape. Formation can be part of that, obviously. Some formations have inherent flaws. The formation Wrexham plays has the inherent flaw of uh, our wing-backs go forwards a lot. Therefore, you can play the ball into the sort of defensive space behind them quickly, and then we've got a problem with our three defenders who've got to sort of spread themselves to cover that, so you can get into that area to the side of the centre backs and stretch us around a bit. Um, but then the benefit of playing that way is that you get an extra man in the middle of midfield compared to say a four-four-two, 
and you often get an extra man up front. Lots of teams play with one striker and wide players are supporting them. We have two out-and-out -out strikers because we've lost one of the back four, if you see, having a back three. That's why when people talk about, oh, back five, it's defensive. Well, certainly not the way Wrexham play it because the two wing-backs go very high up the pitch. We have a back three most of the time. So, yeah, shapes to do with formation, absolutely. But I think usually when I use it, I'm talking about how secure do you look when the other teams start to try and attack you and get at you. <laughs> Michelle Olsen, this is a beauty. Um, she saw this a picture of Messi and Mbappe, both number 10. Thought about Mullen, number 10. Saw Pele, number 10. Did some poking around. It seems jersey numbers can mean more than meets the eye. What should we know? Well, let's have a chat about that. So... The whole idea of numbers, I mean, firstly, it, it's all twisted by the fact that we have squad numbers now. They were brought in in British football, at least in the 1990s. But the idea of numbers having particular values sort of initially comes from the very early days of football. So the 19th century, teams were playing in a 2-3-5 formation, which I think in the very early days would have been very difficult for us to conjure with. And I think football may have looked a lot more like rugby with the ball being get forwards early and those attacking players uh, trying to benefit. Anyway, so you'd have a goalkeeper. Then number two and three are your full-backs and in the sense that they would stay fully back all the time as defensive players. Now, if you look at the, the layout, if you're watching it on video, you will see there is a logical progress here. The keeper's number one, the full-backs two and three from right to left, and then the, the midfield players, as we call them now, but half-backs, as they'd be called then, four, five, six from right to left, and then the attacking line, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So you, you've got three lines of players, basically, right to left in numerical order. Your right-sided half-back, your right half is number four, the centre half is five, the left half is six, and then on the right wing is the number seven, the right winger. Number eight is the inside right. Eight and ten are inside forwards. Number nine is your centre forward. Number ten is your inside left. And your number 11 is your winger, left winger. And so that was the traditional thing. And I would say that... Right, okay, I'm jumping ahead of myself slightly. But when I first started watching football in the late 70s, generally teams, well, they're all named 1 to 11, and, and it was usually quite a surprise if those positions weren't stuck to, or those positions, I'll explain in a moment, would morph. Um, so those numbers kind of stuck, and it was always a bit of a shock when you saw a player with an unexpected number on him. I mentioned in an earlier Dragonheart, actually, talking to Che about numbers of players that Argentina in the 78 World Cup, the first World Cup I watched, fascinatingly exotic because they genuinely just numbered their players according to alphabetical order. So Ozzy Ardiles, who was a very skillful little midfielder, was number one. The goalkeeper, Ubaldo Fijol, was number six. Was he number five? Five, actually, I think. Anyway, let's get back to this. Formations start to adapt the number five starts to become more of a defensive player we're starting to maybe call him more of a center back than a center half and then as things develop further in the 1950s it is interestingly because everyone sees them as hacky go lucky uh, football uh, funsters brazil are the side that come up with the idea of the back four which shifts the full backs wider the five goes into the centre of defence and 
generally the four would also become a centre back. So now we've got a back four. Number two is still the right back, but a right back now is a wide defender. Number three is the left back, a wide defender. And you've got the two centre backs now slotting into a back four, and they're four and five. And that would become quite traditional. Then, well, there were two main formations that would become very popular with the back four. One would be the, well, depending on how you wanted to play it, the 4-2-4, four, four, which would mean 6 and 8 would be your central midfielders. And then up front, you would have 11 still on the left wing, 7 still on the right wing, and then your number 9, the centre forward, joined an attack often by the number 10. In the other popular formation, and this one in some ways has had more hold on the way we, we phrase things, is the 4-3-3. Three, three. And a 4-3-3 three, three would be more, usually it would be a 6 in a holding, more defensive midfield position. Your 8 and your 10 further forwards. The 9 is the attacking player through the middle. 7 on the right, 11 on the left in attack. And, and a lot of people, from a combination of that and the 4-4-2 four, four, ideas, that's where a lot of people see the numbers going. Um, or interpret the numbers, should I say, if I actually say it in English. I would say, I mean, even in football talk today, even though now it's relevant to squad numbers, people still talk about 9v5 um, challenges, the centre-forward up against the centre-back, even when the centre-forward's 20 and the centre-back's 46. Now, obviously, formations change, tactics change, and with squad numbers, teams have altered the sort of ideas that numbers signify. But you'll often find teams who stick roughly to these numbers. And then to directly answer the question, talking about what is a number 10, well, this, for me, actually, this is a sort of football nomenclature that you has become more popular more recently. That the six is becomes a sort of shorthand for a defensive midfielder Eight becomes a sort of shorthand for a type of midfielder who attacks box-to-box box as a runner. And number 10, and this, to be fair, has always been for a long time the case, is seen as a playmaker, the skillful player, often a player who sits furthest forward in midfield, supporting the striker and playing the killer passes. So uh, that's always been the case. So that idea and that picture of Mbappe and Messi and Maradona wearing number 10. Yeah, the number 10 has often been the sort of uh, the creative brains of the team, if you will. And there's a certain cachet to wearing certain shirts. Um, number 9, likewise, when Paul Mullen arrived, everyone thought he'd be a number 9 because he's the striker. But he wanted the number 10 because that was his number at Cambridge. And he saw it as, you know, I am the, the creative fulcrum. The number 10 is the star man which then led to quite a competition between Jake Hyde and Kwame Thomas as to who gets to wear the number nine shirt, because that's traditionally the big striker who scores the goals shirt. Um, as you can see, by the way, I'm talking about it. It doesn't have to be the case, but that has a certain cachet. So much so that when Ivan Zamorano, an excellent Chilean striker back in the 90s, signed for Internazionale in Italy, um, he wanted the number 9 shirt, but he... Oh, no, the number 10 shirt, I think he wanted, was it? 
Oh, was it? No, no, sorry. I'll start again. He wanted the number nine shirt, but unfortunately, the original Brazilian Ronaldo was playing up front for Inter. Possibly the best all-round number nine ever. And he was number nine, and he wasn't going to be having it taken off him. So Zamorano asked to be number 18, and then made a little homemade plus sign. So that his shirt number was 18, but it looked like one plus eight, as if to say, I'm a number nine too. Cute. So just to run through, if it helps at all, I mean, I think the defensive positions are fairly logical. The number six, the holding midfielder, that might be for new fans, your Tom O'Connor midfielder who can sit a bit deeper and tackle and break play up uh, Andy Cannon's been doing that in recent games although I'd say Andy Cannon has maybe been doing it in a slightly less physical way um, O'Connor by the way is a good player as well in terms of having the ball at his feet I'm not trying to disparage him and he can play further up in the other midfield roles the number 8, your box to box runner, well Luke Young number 8 certainly I think fulfills that criteria, James Jones is goodness me the epitome of a, a tireless box-to-box runner um expected to defend when we're not with the ball expected to help coming forwards when we do have the ball and then the number 10 the playmaker well i mean let's be honest in terms of playmakers elliot lee so you're attacking creative midfielder you can see the attractiveness of that sort of balance in a team um and then there are lots of different ways to accommodate them. So a popular formation now is the 4-2-3-1. You have a double pivot, which is two midfielders who are sitting in. And then you'll have the 10 sitting behind the striker or maybe sometimes going beyond him. Um, so, yeah, there are certain positions. I would say the attacking positions, certainly. 11 and 7 traditionally are seen as your wingers. Well, as, you, as you will see, when you look at teams with squad numbers, that's not necessarily the case. Some teams don't play with wingers. Wrexham don't play with wingers. Your number nine is usually your target man or your, your centre forward. Your ten is your creative midfielder. Eight, often a box-to-box midfielder. Six, a holding midfielder. Four and five centre-backs. Sometimes you see sixes as centre-backs as well, though, to be fair. And two and three, the full-backs. And one, the goalkeeper. But... Squad numbers have had a death of that in any literal sense. So when you look at you know squad lists, you will see deviation from that. Uh, just occurred to me, let me grab a programme. Because otherwise my memory won't be good enough. How much have Wrexham stuck to that model? Well... Our number one is a goalkeeper, Lainton. Our number two is a right-back, Hall Johnson. Our number three is a left-back, McFadgen. Four and five and six are centre-backs. Well, like I said, that's quite normal. And we do play with three centre-backs. Davis, number seven. So that's unusual. He's a centre-midfielder and left-sided. But he's got the number seven. But then I suppose sometimes number seven is associated with a creative player. Um, Dalglish for Liverpool, for example, in the 70s and 80s, an outstanding creative attacking player. And so he was number seven. Um, sometimes teams have their own traditions as well, to be fair. Ace Young is a number eight star midfielder. Ollie Palmer, number nine. Yeah, your archetypal big bloke in the box. That's number nine for you. Ten, Mullen. Yeah, attacking, creative, fulcrum. And 11, McAlinden. And McAlinden, yeah, I think we'd probably see himself as a left-sided attacking player. So those 1 to 11s, yeah, absolutely. The other numbers, I would say, have no significance. In fact, you sometimes find things like, because Michael Jordan wore 23, 
some footballers wore 23 like Beckham and Jamie Carragher uh, sometimes and here's a depressing thing you sometimes get messages sent by numbers there was I'm afraid a fashion in the 90s in Italy when some high profile players had to um, answer to this there were suggestions that players were picking letters to represent initials of extreme right-wing politicians, past and present. And that, as you can imagine, isn't great. Uh, so, there you go. That's about as much as I've got on numbers. So there you go. And, right, this one, last one, Rural Detective. Good evening. Who's been your surprise player of the year? Who has impressed most but you didn't expect it. Now, we answered that in the broadcast. I'll give it another go here. Tony Cliff, Dolby and Cannon, the suggestions he's given. Right, I'm going to I'm gonna be difficult, but then I'll answer your question anyway. Um, I don't think there is a surprise player because Parkinson, every player he's brought in, I thought, oh, that, that player looks like they can they can bring something to the party. I was surprised Tony Cliff didn't get a chance earlier. In fact, I, I've always liked Tony Cliff, but you know, when he always played well against us for AFC Fylde, um, so I'm going to say that, strictly speaking, I'd say nobody. Having said that, which players maybe have performed at a high level that I might not have expected them to, to do this season? Well, Dolby, I like the look of him. He was brought in as a backup striker. He's young. He had a decent season for Southend last time. But, you know, will he adapt? Will he do a good job? Well, he, he looks great. I mean, I'm massively impressed with him. I thought maybe he'd be one that would develop... And maybe in a year or two, we'd be really seeing him hit the ground uh, running. But he is a genuine competitor for the starting place with Palmer, isn't he? Which is very impressive. So I would definitely say him. I'm not sure. Um, well, I suppose the other one I would say, and, and all right, this is a slight surprise, a pleasant surprise. And I don't mean to sound patronising. Jake Bickerstaff has had the odd chance here and there and has always been a really good hard-working striker but as we've been bringing in players like Mullen and Palmer I can't deny I thought oh, okay he's a promising young lad but that that path is being blocked because we are understandably spending good money on match-winning strikers to be fair he looks like he's really kicked on this season now he still hasn't had that many opportunities and it's still gonna be hard for him to force his way into the team but I think he looks a bit more of a dangerous striker in terms of scoring goals rather than just working hard for the team than maybe I thought he would be. There's more to Bickerstaff, I think, than I thought. I always liked him. Please don't get me wrong. But I look at him now and I think, oh, actually, this is a lad who we could be using in the Football League and he'd be useful. Whereas I think maybe previously I was thinking, well, his work rate's terrific, but will he have that extra cutting edge or quality or will we have to convert him to something else perhaps? Um, so I'm very pleased with him and the few games he's played. So, that's it for this week. Enjoy the big double header, of course. We'll be commentating on both the men's and women's games this weekend. Two huge matches to look forward to. Let's hope it's a brilliant weekend for us all. Thanks you so much for listening and sending in the Ask Wrexham questions. Please keep them coming. I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC.